Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 14th, 2018, and this is episode 2,326 of the Survival Podcast. We've got a good one today. We are back to our regularly scheduled programming. It's a Wednesday, so that means that it is interview day. And I've got a good one for you today. I don't get a lot of females uh, on the guest list. Uh, we have one today, Terry Page, and her topic is homesteading with children. I think that's going to be a great one. Terry's awesome. She's a blogger behind the popular homesteading website, Homestead Honey. Her homesteading adventures have taken her from Oregon, where she planted her first vegetables and fell in love with a dirt-covered lifestyle. Then it moved on to Missouri, where her family built an off-the-grid homestead from scratch, and they lived in a 350-square-foot tiny house without running water. Eventually, they moved to, to Vermont, where Terry now homesteads with her husband and two children. Terry's chronicled her adventures at Homestead Honey, a blog that covers topics from tiny house living to gardening to fermented foods, general homesteading topics, and more. And she joins us today again to discuss homeschooling, homeschooling, you know, that's in my head all the time, homesteading with kids, a topic she's passionate about and feels is truly important for the TSP community. We'll have her on in just a moment. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. You'll find it all at Ready-Made Resources, from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. It's all available where... You guessed it, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. America has gone from a, a nation where like calling a guy was seen as like a sign of weakness. Like you call a guy, like this thing's broken, call a guy. This thing's, this thing's messed up, call a guy to fix it. Like no, my, my dad would be like, ah, the hell with that. You know, my grandfather, you call a guy, I'll shoot him, right? I mean, that's how they were. Now look. I get being busy and not having time to do stuff. And there are th certain things that, like, if I know if I'm not going to do that right, I'm not going to do it at all. Because it's going to be somewhere to look at or something. But we don't always have to call a guy. And calling a guy is a sign of, I don't know how to use a basic tool. One great way you can learn to use basic tools and pass that on to your kids and learn a great hobby or craft or even a small business or even a big business is by building knives. You can find everything you need to do that at knifekits.com. And the name, again, says what they do. Sure, you can get raw materials, mammoth tusk, right? You can get ivory. You can get raw blade material and cut your own blades. Or you can get true kits where the knife, the hard work, the shaping of the blade, etc., is already done. And you focus on final fit and finish, picking handle material, stuff like that. It's a great way to get started, and they can take you from the very beginner to the advanced stages. They've been a long-term sponsor of the show going on over eight years. You can learn more at knifekits.com. And remember, ready-made resources and knife kits both do discounts for members of the MSB. All you got to do is log into your benefits section of the MSB to get your discount before you place your order. And before we get Terry on, let's go back in time to this day in history in the year 1882. We're going back to Tombstone, Arizona. We just covered very recently the shootout at the OK Corral. Of course, that was enshrined into many movies, sometimes accurately and sometimes not so much, 
But one of the modern movies that's most famous for this, and I guess I say modern and it's like 20-something years ago, uh, 1993, the movie Tombstone, one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, if nothing else for uh, Val Kilmer's part where he played Doc Holliday, and uh, the one guy tells him, hell, Doc, I have lots of friends, and his response was, I don't. I've always identified with that. Always loved that movie, but that movie is not, I'll repeat again, not historically accurate. If you remember that movie fondly like I do, pay attention to the names you're going to hear today. You're going to hear a lot of names out of that movie. Character names, not the not the cast names. Um, there were real people that really were in Tombstone but had nothing to do with the OK Corral and certainly didn't go down in a final blaze of glory gunfight against either Wyatt Earp or Doc Holliday. Here we go. 1882 on this day, November the 14th. Gunslinger Frank Buckskin Leslie shoots... Billy the Kid, Claiborne, yeah, Billy Claiborne, dead in the streets of Tombstone, Arizona. The town of Tombstone is uh, known best today as the infamous shootout at the OK Corral in the 1880s. However, Tombstone was home to many gunmen who never achieved the enduring fame of Wyatt Earp or Doc Holliday. Franklin Buckskin Leslie was one of the most notorious of these largely forgotten outlaws. There are few surviving details about Leslie's early life. At different times, he claimed to have been born in both Texas and Kentucky, studied medicine in Europe, and to have been an Army scout in the war against the Apache Indians. No evidence has ever emerged to support or conclusively deny these claims. The first historical evidence of Leslie's life emerges in 1877 when he became a scout in Arizona. A few years later, Leslie was attracted to the money-making opportunities of the booming mining town of Tombstone, where he opened the Cosmopolitan Hotel in 1880. In that same year, he killed a man named Mike Colleen during a quarrel over Colleen's wife, and he married the woman shortly thereafter. Leslie's reputation as a cold-blooded killer brought him trouble after his drinking companion and fellow gunman John Ringo. There you go, Johnny Ringo from the movie, right? Not, yeah, okay, here we go. Johnny Ringo was found dead in July 1882. Some Tombstone citizens, including a young friend of Ringo's named Billy the Kid Claiborne, were convinced Leslie had murdered Ringo, though they could not prove it. Probably seeking vengeance and notoriety that would come from shooting the famous gunslinger, Claiborne unwisely decided to publicly challenge Leslie, who shot him dead. The remainder of Leslie's life was equally violent and senseless. After divorcing Colleen in 1887, he took up with Tombstone prostitute, who he murdered several years later during a drunken rage. Even by the loose standards of frontier law and tombstone, the murder of an unarmed woman was unacceptable unless they served 10 years in prison before he was paroled in 1896. Keep in mind, he kills this woman in a drunken rage who he's married to. He does 10 years in prison at a time when they could have hung you for stealing a horse. Just saying. After his release, he married again and worked a variety of odd jobs around the West. He reportedly made a small fortune in gold fields, of the Klondike region before he disappeared forever from the historical record. Bunch of stuff here to look at. This, this is interesting. Number one, uh, Billy Claiborne and John Ringo were both um, characters in the, uh, the the movie Tombstone and, and in no way were accurately portrayed, uh, other than they were there and maybe they were involved with some of the stuff going on, but the, the whole storyline is totally fake. Uh, Hollywood does this often. They will pull in names of real people, Um The, the movie Gladiator with Comatus is, a, you know, is the same that there was the Emperor Comatus, and it's kind of a, a mod pause of other things. And I actually don't have a, a problem with Hollywood doing this, as long as it's presented as what it is, like just like a story based loosely on history. I, I think that's actually 
entertaining and fine. What's odd is that sometimes people grab onto those Hollywood things and like as though that's proof of their version of history as being real. And so I think that with history, we always have to go look at what's actually real versus what's been portrayed as real to us. The other thing is, you know, we talk a lot about the time of the founding fathers and duels and stuff like that, where like you've insulted my honor, I challenge you to a duel, we shoot at each other, maybe one of us dies, but everybody's kind of okay with that. So here we are, we're up to the 1880s. This is still going on. Like, so Leslie kills Claiborne, and because Claiborne issued the challenge, the two people knew what they were doing, they decided to do it, and they went out and took shots at each other, there's no charges. We, we've changed a lot since then, and I do think for the better. I think that you know, maybe there needs to be a method by which men settle their dis differences, maybe even with some level of violence, but I, I don't think shooting at each other is acceptable. But there's some people who I think, like, if they shot at each other, I don't know that I would really care if either one of them went away. <laughs> Just saying. Anyway, on to better things. Again, our special guest today, Terry Page, is the blogger behind the homesteading website Homestead Honey. She's here to talk to us about one of her true passions. They several of them, actually. Homesteading, tiny house living, etc., but especially homesteading with kids. And with that, hey, Terry, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. We're here today to talk about homesteading, probably some about off-grid living and tiny house living. But the big topic is homesteading with kids. And I think that's so important. I feel like the grounding that, that saved me from being a catastrophe in my life was the things I learned from my grandparents and things like that, that were mostly homesteading, uh, wilderness skills, herbal stuff, all that stuff we do on homesteading. So this this topic mm. is near and dear to my heart, Terry. But before we, we kind of dig into that, I want the audience to get to know, like, how, how did you end up where you are? Let's go back, like, your space mountain study hall in high school. And, and how does that lead to a life where you and your husband and kids are living off the grid? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in suburban Boston, and I wasn't exposed to any of this, really. I mean, my, my grandma and my grandpa had a, um, a small vegetable garden, but but literally that was it as far as, like, homesteading exposure. Um, but from, from the time of high school, I was definitely interested in biology, and when I started college, I got very interested in sort of field ecology, outdoor education, marine ecology, And that's um, what I went into for my first job out, out of college was teaching marine biology to kids in this outdoor setting. And that's where I met my husband. Um, and he was really interested in homesteading. And um, he ended up going to this sustainability education center in Oregon. And I was young and in love and, you know, I was ready to move on from my job. So I followed him up to Oregon and became uh, sort of a work trade in their organic garden. And that was really the turning point for me, was just having that opportunity to learn from sort of a master gardener and to just spend the next four months growing food, learning how to preserve it, and um, and living in this center that was doing everything from, you know, cutting their own wood for building to milking goats and Uh, raising chickens and then and then the garden too so that really was like the catapult for the beginning of my homesteading life and then you know once we started doing it ourselves it just 
you start small and you just keep adding, 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 adding. And, and that's, you know, that's how we ended up where we, where we are. <laughs> I, I understand completely. So I think that reinforces what I always say, like people with kids and all, even your kids aren't that into it, do something with them, get, get them yes. involved because it carries over and you have like, it, 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 you, know, you, you plant the seed, maybe it doesn't grow this season, maybe it doesn't grow that season, but sooner or later that seed will grow where it's planted in. So plant that seed. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of on that, we're talking about kids today a lot. So I know for a fact that children coming into your life changes everything. Um, I've experienced mm-hmm. it by becoming a father. And then in recent years, you know, having grown my boy up and set him off on his way, and now we're grandparents, mm-hmm. and we're the kind of grandparents where the kids are here every day. And it changes awesome. the flow. So can you talk about, like, your experience homesteading before and then after bringing children into your life? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we started homesteading in 1999, I would say. That was the sort of official beginning. And and like I said, you know, we started small, but we kept adding, adding, adding. So by the time I was pregnant with my daughter, Ella, who will be 11 next month, um, she uh, she came into a life that was already rich with homesteading. You know, we had already grown gardens, planted fruit trees, put up a greenhouse. We had um, pigs and goats and chickens. And, you know, we were we were sort of full on into the homesteading lifestyle by that point. So having kids didn't so much like change the trajectory of like what we did, but it just forced us to get really clear on what the priorities were and what we really, really wanted to do. Because, you know, when kids come into your life, it's so beautiful. And you all of a sudden don't have quite as much time as, as you once did (laughs) to do all of, all of those things. Um, So we, you know, we had to, cut a few things out, but I would say we really continued to go down the path of growing our own food and, and especially really being committed to trying to grow and source as much of our food locally as we could so that we knew exactly what was in the food and we knew exactly what we were feeding our children and, you know, and they could learn from that process as well. So you guys lived in like a tiny house off the grid, 350 square feet, you two kids, no running water. Um, it sounds like a challenge, no electricity, but how, how was that with, with two small children? That, that, that just sounds almost torturous to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, so, so yeah, so our life trajectory was kind of like, we lived in Oregon for 14 years and we had, you know, a quirky cabin, but, but had running water and a shower and electricity and all that. And then we moved to Missouri and we started our off the grid homestead from scratch. And we lived there for like six years in those conditions that you were talking about. Um, and then we recently just moved again. So now we're in Vermont um, and we live in a house that has everything, you know, it has, it has electricity, it has running water. So, um, so having lived in all three of those conditions with kids, I can tell you that like the basics of living with children is the same no matter where you live and how you live. It's it's that, you know, you're still trying to figure out how to balance all the things in your day and give the children all the love and attention and focus that you want to give them. Um, what it meant when we were living off the grid was just we had to spend a lot more time on our basic, basic needs. 
So we had to, you know, carry the water in from outside. And for a while, we didn't have electricity, but then we ended up um, having solar electric. So, you know, for those years that we didn't have electricity, we were lighting candles and teaching the kids how to be aware around candles and fire. Um, so really, you know, kids are so resilient. They're so just like open minded and and adaptable. And at that time, they were two and five years old and they just went with it. They just they honestly they just went with the flow because we just presented it as our new normal. And it was fun. It was an adventure. It was like camping. And I, I mean, now I can look back at it. I know there was some struggle at the time, <laughs> but it was a really pretty awesome experience, I think, for all of us. Well, and you, you, you did need to cheat a little bit because I'd like to see you pull this off with like a 13-year-old girl who's lived her whole life right. with computers and Internet and electricity and a blow dryer and a curling iron and a hair straightener. Now, I think, <laughs> I, now that would be a challenge, right? That's oh, a whole absolutely. new level. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do realize that part of what made our experience really successful was that our kids were really young. And they were at an age where, you know, and we still don't do a lot of media in our household. But, um, you know, at that time, they had had no exposure to TV or video games or movies or anything. So, you know, for them to not have access to those kinds of things, just it didn't even phase them at all. I think it was a bigger challenge for me because I had by that point started my blog, my website, you know, my online business. And so I had to keep a business running while living without electricity. <laughs> and that was, that was, you know, the most challenging, I would say. So now that you've kind of, you know, found your stride, I guess would be the way to put it. What do your two children take part in, in your home life, homesteading lifestyle? Like what are the things that they do and get involved in And how old are they now? Yeah, so um, Everett will be eight tomorrow, actually. It's his birthday tomorrow. Um, and Ella will be 11 next month. And, you know, what they take part in really varies from day to day. They are mostly responsible for the chicken chores. We have a flock of laying hens here. Um, you know, back in Missouri, they had their own garden beds and they would plant their beds and, and harvest and, you know, they'd, they'd be involved with that quite a bit. Because we just moved to a new spot, life is just looking a little bit different for us right now. But they're involved in, in lots of different things. I mean, it's kind of whatever we're involved with, we just try and fold them into that as much as possible. So, um, you know, like this miraculous thing happened the other night where we were we were butchering um, broiler chickens. And so we had all these chickens that had been butchered that day and they were ready to be put in bags and weighed and labeled and, you know, shrink wrapped and the whole, the whole thing. And so we just started, you know, we had our friend come over, we had everything set up and we just started working, my husband and I, and then Everett came over and he's like, what are you doing? And we said, Oh, we're doing this, you know, shrink wrap them in the hot water. And, and, He's like, I want to be involved. And so he started shrink wrapping the chickens and going outside and getting a new chicken. And then Ella came over. What are you guys doing? And then she started weighing the chickens and writing the weights. And so, you know, it was such a great example to me of how if you're just open to letting your kids help when they show interest, then they are truly contributing and truly helping 
it's not, you know, it wasn't burdensome in any way to us. It was truly helpful. Um, and on the flip side, if we had said, hey, you guys, you know, you can't, you can't play tonight. You have to help us package up these chickens. I bet there would have been some resistance. So, and our philosophy has always been like involve them in everything, expose them to everything, require certain chores for sure. You know, like we have chores and they have, they have responsibilities, but also know that like the way to get kids excited about things is to just make it exciting and, you know, make it, make it something that the family does together. So really have that connection piece. Um, you know, whether or not they grow up and want to be homesteaders, I have no idea. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but but that's not really the point. No, it's not. I mean, my, my father was a uh, in the used tire business and he was a coal miner. I, I, I don't really want to go through either one of those things, but I learned a lot from them and, mm -hmm. and it still affects me in my life. And I think like one of the things I've always tried to get across to parents is like your job is literally to work yourself out of a job. Now, there's a point, right? Like, you will always be their mother or father, and you will always be there from them. But the, the guidance level of you're not allowed to do this, you're supposed to do that, be home by nine. Uh, when they get older, yeah, you can have a car, but this is when you can have it. And, like, all of that stuff is the discipline that you apply to them on their behalf so they can learn to discipline themselves. And so everything we do is designed to give them a framework that when they go off and do their own thing, that all the stuff we've put in helps, but how they choose to use it, that's their mission in life. And we have ours and we need to be at peace with theirs. Yes. That's such a great way of putting it. I really appreciate that philosophy that you're sharing. Yeah. So you recently wrote a book called family homesteading. Tell us what that book is about and what it offers families interested in survival, prepping, homesteading, all this stuff. Sure. Yeah. So family homesteading is definitely like the book of my heart. You know, it's it's the book that I wanted to share because I believe that homesteading is this beautiful tool for connecting with nature, for connecting with the seasons, for learning these important skills about self-sufficiency and preparedness. And then also for, you know, just connecting as a family, for growing those relationships. Um, so the book is the book is broken up into you know, kind of tips, guidance, um, recipes, projects. There's lots of to-dos and instructions on how to do things. And it covers a number of different areas of homesteading. So gardening, foraging, fermentation, cooking with kids, um, family-friendly ferments, caring for animals, preparedness, herbal wellness, crafts. Um, and it's, you know, it's very seasonal. It's very much the crafts that are in here, for instance, are like, going out into the forest, collecting black walnut hulls and making ink out of that or using goldenrod from the meadow to make uh, natural dyes that you can dye yarn or, or cloth or something. So um, so that's sort of the structure of the book. And as far as what it offers, parents, teachers, you know, anybody that lives with children, loves children, works with children, I think this is I mean, I hope, I hope that everyone thinks that it's a great book. I think it's a great book. Um, I could see this being, you know, something that homeschoolers use to help guide their lessons. I can see this book being something that kids sit down with their parents or grandparents and say, I want to do this. I want to make this. 
Um, and, you know, it's kind of that mixture of just offering like suggestions of projects that you can do together and that are age appropriate and seasonally appropriate. And also, you know, me sharing some of the things that have worked and, and haven't worked for us as a family and hoping that that encourages people to really take that leap and try to share a little bit of homesteading with their with their kids. Awesome. Awesome. And can you maybe talk a little bit about why do you feel that homesteading with kids is important? Mm, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm biased, right? Because sure. I've I've been I've been homesteading with my kids forever, and homesteading is definitely. Um, I mean, if if I had to sort of claim an identity over the past twenty years, it's definitely been homesteader. <laughs> but. I look at my children now who have grown up homesteading and, you know, I feel like they have a number of traits that I think have developed specifically from this homesteading lifestyle. Um, one of them is just like an awareness of the natural world and not just, you know, like Ella, my 11 year old, she's, she's better at noticing patterns and observing animals, plants. Um, she can identify almost any bird that we come across, whereas I still struggle with it. Um, she just kind of has cultivated from birth, like this awareness and comfort with the creatures that we're surrounded by. So she's comfortable in the natural world. She's comfortable with plants. She, you know, she could walk out into the woods with me and, and together we could find edible plants or, um, you know, healing plants and, and also things like weather too. You know, it's like, there's this, an awareness of, of like, oh, here's our environment. Here's us. And are we prepared for what the environment is offering us at this time? Um, so definitely like a consciousness that I really lacked as a child. And, you know, it's taken me decades as an adult to cultivate that same level of awareness. Um, and, you know, and just in general, I think, the kids that grow up with homesteading and thinking about um, making, they think about making, creating and sourcing, I think before buying, you know, like my, my kids natural reaction to something is generally, I want to do this. Can we make that? Or, you know, I want to do this. I'm going to go over and get some paper and glue and I'm going to go ahead and create it which I think is, you know, it's, it's not as common as it used to be with kids. Um, Cause we're just, you know, we've kind of moved into a more consumeristic society and that's, you know, that that's just something that I think homesteading cultivates more of a producing. Um, and then, you know, of course, homesteading is also great for like just learning about the cycles of life and death. It's, especially if you're raising animals or, or even in the garden, you know, raising plants, watching nature around you, you just kind of understand seasonality. You understand that, you know, tomatoes grow in August. And, and if you want to enjoy that tomato fresh off the vine, then you need to eat it now. It's like, um, it kind of gives you this appreciation of the here and now in, in a way that I think is really important to, share with children. I think what I'd add to that is earlier you used a phrase, children are so resilient. I, mm -hmm. I, I'd like that to be the truth all the time. 
I think children have yeah. the potential for massive resilience. I think humans do. But society has actually really messed that up over time. Um, kids today have a lot of trouble getting by with anything that's outside of exactly what they expect, especially as they get older. I mean, I've seen it with young, I've hired quite a few young people to like give them an opportunity to be on a farm, to get some mentorship. And man, boy, you give them something to do and you give them defined parameters and those parameters stay the same. They can do it. Mm. Let something mm. change, and oh my, I don't know what to do, and all that. I, 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 yeah, no, they'll either freak mm-hmm. out, come running to you, or sit there and do nothing. And I think when you do like the homesteading, um, the, the nature walks, uh, build things, etc., with kids, yeah, it's so much beyond the ability to do those things. It is a mental switch where. Oh, I can, it, 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 in some ways it's like the light version of the military. I always wanted to hire veterans because I knew that if I gave them a mission and they got to a point mm-hmm. where the things they were doing didn't work, well, it's, it's a mission. It's not, you know, it's not a checkbox. I, I have to do this. So I'm going to figure out some, <laughs> some other way to get this done. And unless I'm doing something that I, I really should ask for approval for first, I'm just going to go do it. And mm-hmm. I think that kids that grow up in this environment, they translate that into all the things they do. And today, I think it was always good to be that person. It always put you a little bit ahead of your peers. But I think today, because so many aren't, you're setting your kids up for a, a position in life where they are so far ahead of their peers that it's almost not fair. But when it comes to my kids, I'm not looking for it to be fair. Right? I, I'll stack the deck. Well, because you have the, you can do that too if you want to. But I'll stack the deck, you know, to put my kid in a position like I said, when I when I let go and say now it's your life to go out and to be able to just to kick ass and take names on, on on a superior level, and I think that kids that come from the country, kids that come from farms, they they always if they go into something that you think is foreign to them, like you know coding computers or something, they always seem to excel because well you know I I don't know what to do now, so I'm going to do something as long as it's not going to break anything and see what happens. Versus, I better wait for somebody to tell me what to do. Yeah, that sense of like curiosity, but also problem solving ability. Because, you know, what do you run into all the time on a farm or a homestead? You run into problems. <laughs> <laughs> you just, like, you just have to deal, right? And so the kids, you know, even if the kids aren't directly solving those problems themselves, I think they are surrounded by this attitude of, of creative problem solving, which is exactly what you were just talking about. It gives them a heads up in, in anything that they want to pursue. Well, yeah, because the kids want to be like their parents. Little boys want to be like their daddy. So if their daddy's mm-hmm. the guy that when anything breaks, daddy fixes it, well, then they naturally want to be like daddy. Like, even when they're not able to do it, like, well, you know, if something breaks, dad fixes it, so I'm going to try to fix it. But if daddy's the guy that calls somebody whenever something breaks, then w- what are you giving them to emulate? You're giving them right. the concept that solution is outside of yourself to emulate. And, and I think kids are just little humans. That's the other thing I talk about all the time. Like kids, kids are not like like when I see girls, and they get all excited because it's a new baby, and they're passing it around like it's a doll, and they all want to dress it up. And she's like, that's a that's a small human being, <laughs> right? And, and, and they follow the same rules that all human beings follow. And as we develop, the people that we we look to to provide for us, we always want to be like them. So whatever you're modeling, that's what you're going to get. So you kind of got to be careful what you're modeling, especially like being a grandfather now. Like you get kind of loose and free with things when the kids leave 
right? And you have those years when they're in their late teens when they're still around, but you can be on more adult language level and stuff. And then, you know, like all of a sudden you've got a seven-year-old and a two-year-old in your house. You're like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I got to dial it back to Sesame Street level. And they don't know Sesame Street, so it's that Frank and Oliver or whatever's on my YouTube all the time now. Um, but, yeah, man, and, and I, I do think there's a huge thing for that. Um, but, like, the big objection you'll hear today is we're so busy. It's two-income household. You know, we got all these things going on. Um, how can yeah. families fit homesteading activities into their life? Yeah, it, you know, that is, it's probably the biggest challenge because if you look at homesteading and you just think, oh my gosh, homesteading, it's like growing food and preserving food and oh, I have to be raising animals and I have to have chickens tomorrow and oh no, then I have to raise a cow too. Like, of course, if you think about it like that, you're going to get overwhelmed. You're not going to start. And so, you know, I really encourage people who have any interest in homesteading or, you know, any of the things that I've mentioned, be it gardening, foraging, fermentation, you know, preparedness, any of those, just to pick one little area that either draws your interest or would make a huge difference in your life. Um, like, for instance, if your health is poor and changing your diet is going to help you, then focus on food, focus on food for the next year and just figure out how can I source? How can I grow? How can I preserve? How can I ferment? Well, okay, maybe those are more, you know, that's, that's getting bigger, but just pick one little thing and just take action because the thing is, is action when taken regularly becomes habit and then habit doesn't feel busy anymore. Habit just feels like this is what I do. And that's where I think you can really make the biggest changes in your life is if you just pick that one thing, you do it enough so that it becomes habit. And then you've all, all of a sudden found that you've incorporated this huge change into your daily life. Um, and, you know, I get that since we moved here to Vermont, our life has changed quite a bit. I mean, we're homesteading in different ways. We're um, we're working a lot more. And so, all of a sudden we do have that like double income family, you know, my husband's working jobs. I'm working three jobs. Um, I'm still fermenting every day. I'm have a few garden beds, you know, have some chickens. It doesn't really take that long once you get things set up. So just starting with that one small action step and building that into your daily life and, and then just seeing what opens up for you after that. Yeah, I think kind of biting things off one piece at a time helps. So, like, let's say somebody wants to put a garden in, right? Okay, great. So I'm going to put a garden in. Uh, but I want to do everything 100% organic, and I want to build a compost pile. Okay, wait. That's a different skill. Yeah. Go buy some soil if you have to, unless you have good soil where you can just dig it over and, and, and put in a garden. But if you can just dig it over, fine. Go buy some compost and amend it with that. And, and I want to do all my nutrient from – no. Go get some good organic fertilizer. Put it on the ground. And I want to start my own plants. Great idea for next year. Go down to the store, buy 20, 30 plants. That's enough for your first year. Put them in there. That's a different skill. And let's just yes. get the garden going. Have some success. Yeah. Be happy. Don't go out and buy a 70,000 uh, quart canner for your first garden. You ain't going to need it. Right? Just get a garden to grow and just get through that first season. And maybe during that season, set up your compost facility. Take all your waste. Yeah, absolutely. These like minor steps one at a time. And then when you get to a point where you're like, this is too much, take the thing that you like the least and kill it. 
and find stasis there until you feel like you want to do something else. And then all of a sudden it becomes part of your life. You mentioned chickens, right? So you, you bring chickens mm-hmm. in your life. Like you think it's going to be a big deal, but if you bring like two, four, six laying hens and you set them up with a good system that manages them and all you do is throw your scraps, food and water, and you give them some of their own food and water and you throw the scraps, a lot of compost it. They become an asset. They do work you don't want to do. You pull your yeah. weed. Yeah, you pull your weed out of that one garden bed or two garden beds you put in. Chickens are right over there. You pull the weed out, throw it in the chickens. Chickens make it in compost. And now it's less work. And I think that kind of thinking, and then go real small, man. Like, we teach people about microgreens. I don't really see that as a true homesteading thing, but we are growing our own food. And you can set up a little space, you know, the size of two laptops and produce more mm-hmm. microgreens than you could ever eat. Start with something really easy. Get the kids on board. And as they get available to do things, teach them to do things. Even when they can't think for themselves and figure out how to solve a problem yet, you can teach a kid, these are what the weeds look like. Pull the weeds out, give them to the chickens. And then they don't have to yeah. pull weeds. Get, guess what they get to do? They get to feed the chickens. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. The and fun it, part. <laughs> yeah, and if you like, look at Johnny, if you catch a grasshopper and you throw them in there, one chicken grabs it and runs around, the other one's chasing them. wonder how many grasshoppers you can find. There won't be a grasshopper. In the backyard, once Johnny knows what chickens do with grasshoppers. Like, so channel that energy, right? Yes, totally, totally. And that's playing into the idea that, you know, having your kids be involved should be fun. It should be something that they feel excited to be a part of. And and they do when you tell them to catch grasshoppers and feed them to chickens. That's fun. (laughs) That's really fun. Yeah, and then they're not getting in trouble, right? You know, they're, they're not off doing something else. You know where they're at. Um, but I could, another thing is, like, I, I hear from people all the time, like, we're working on getting land. We're working on getting land. And I always say, like, grow where, mm. you, grow where you're planted. Modern homesteading can take place any place. In fact, some of the most amazing homesteads I've seen are on, like, a quarter of an acre, you know, or a tenth yep. of an acre, these little suburban homesteads. So can you talk about how urban or suburban parents can bring homesteading into the lives of their, their kids? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you brought up a great point, like growing microgreens, for instance. That's something that anybody can do anywhere. You know, all you need is a little bit of substrate to grow your greens. You need a light. You need a little bit of water. You need some seed, right? I mean, you need a countertop, but but everybody has that ability. So So there's all these different things that you can do no matter where you live and you know, and, and I feel like no matter where I live, I will always be a homesteader because I might not be doing the same exact thing that I was doing in Missouri when I lived off the grid and I had 10 acres, but I'm still using that same mindset and those skill sets. So um, a few of my favorite things to recommend for people who live in more of like a suburban or a, um, urban environment, I love fermentation. It's one of my favorite ways to preserve food. And what I love about fermentation is you are preserving food. You're also making it more nutrient rich. You're also um, kind of getting in touch with traditional craft, traditional food craft. And it's so easy, you know, to make something like sauerkraut, you need salt and you need a container and you need cabbage. Um, you put it on your counter. It does its fermentation thing. After a week or so, you put it in the fridge. And all of a sudden, you've just made something that if you went to the store and bought, I mean, nowadays, good raw sauerkraut costs 10 bucks for a, for a quart or so. Um, 
so fermentation is something that I love bringing to people. I have a ton of fermentation recipes on my blog and then several in this uh, book as well. And foraging can be really fun, even in an urban environment, you know, as long as you're being, uh, respectful and knowledgeable about where you're foraging and making sure that you have permission yeah, to not, be foraging not, there. Not raiding Mr. Johnson's blackberry bush in his front yard. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> permission, permission-based foraging. And with kids, it's especially important anytime you're eating wild edibles is, you know, making sure you are 100% sure of what you're picking um, so we don't end up poisoning ourselves. But, but that can be a wonderful thing to do. Go for a walk and look and see what wild edibles you have around um, herbalism, you know, using, even if you're just buying some materials from the bulk food store or, you know, a quality distributor like Mountain Rose Herbs, and you're making your own medicine, you're making tinctures, you're making salves, you're, you know, making cough syrups for, for people. That's a wonderful thing that you can do with, with really very little equipment um, to get started. So, those are a few starting points. You know, I think there's also lots of opportunities to look for ways to serve others who have land and work out some kind of trade. You know, we um, we haven't always had our own equipment or land or, you know, we've gotten creative sometimes about how we how we trade with people. And um, mentorship is, is a huge, wonderful thing. But I always say if you're going to ask someone to be your mentor, like make sure you're adding value to their lives as well. So, you know, maybe if you're interested in learning about dairy animals, but you still live in the city, figure out how you can interact with a local dairy farm and figure out how you can bring them value. So they want to have you spending time there. So, yeah, I, I think that it's it's really no matter where you live, you can find something that calls to you that falls under the umbrella of, of homesteading and just find that thing and go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, what are maybe say three action steps that parents can take to give their kids, you know, some homesteading skills, like things that our listeners can go out and maybe over the next couple of months, do those three things. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, so I think my answer is going to be a little more like mindset based um, rather than saying, number one, go out and buy mason jars and begin preserving food because everybody has different interests. I mean, I love to garden, but not everybody does. So you should you should really go with what you feel excited about. So, you know, number one, I'd say start small, just like we've talked about here, like pick one thing to tackle at a time and do it well, because. I know from my own experience and I work with a lot of um, women as like a coach, um, life coach and business coach. And I've seen over and over again that when you take on too much at once, it typically leads to overwhelm. And then you just kind of put it down. You just say, I'm done. Whereas if you just do that process that we talked about before, pick that one thing, integrate it into your life, make it a part of your, your daily experience, then tends to be much more successful. So that would be the first thing I'd say, just start small. Um, the second thing is I would say involve your kids in the decision, you know, talk about it together. Maybe like my daughter, for instance, loves chickens. She <laughs> just adores 
she just loves them. You know, she'll go out there, she'll hug them, she'll pet them. She knows all their names, when they were born, who they, who they, who their offspring has been. Um, if I asked her to design a new chicken coop or to place an order for next year's chicks, like she would be all over that because she's truly passionate about chickens. So, you know, that's something I think it's, it's really important. Don't, don't just, you know, make decisions for your kids, involve them in that decision and, and see what they feel excited about. Um, and then uh, this isn't really an action step so much, but this is just, you know, this is more like recommendation just because if you're just getting started sometimes, especially in this day and age where we have Instagram as kind of our like guiding light or homesteading blogs and books. Um, you know, it might look, it might look in the pages of my book or on my blog or Instagram that, you know, everything is neat and perfect. And my children are always behaved and, and do everything that I want them to do. And that's not true. Like life is messy and homesteading is messy and homesteading with kids is messy and that's okay. You know, it's, at the end of the day, I want to connect with my children. I want them to love me and I want to love them fiercely. I want to give them the skills that they need to be successful, contributing adults and fulfilling their passion and being kind and generous. And so, you know, if, if we get less applesauce canned, then, then that's just that, you know, the relationship is going to take priority for me. Um, so just, you know, just know that it's okay. Learning, learning takes time. Let the kids make mistakes and just know that it's all about the journey. Absolutely. Kind of what you made me think of there is, you know, this concept of building on, like I said, you know, do the garden first, then do the compost, et cetera. So like if you, if you have a kid that loves the chickens and, and yeah. you're in the early stages and you're moving forward with that, well, then it would be a really obvious project for the next project to be setting up a composting system for your chickens to work with. Because like, mm -hmm. they're like, we're going to do composting. I don't want to do composting. But we're doing it for the chickens. Oh, right? right. And, like, so how can you figure, well, like, as you get them, like, you might even have to push them in, right? Like, kind of push them in the pool. But once they start swimming, you learn what they like and then run with that. So, like, all the logical next step that you can get by in, especially if it requires any kind of work, like pick something that is attached to something they already like. And I really never thought of that until I heard you speaking there. And I'm like, I, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, my kids are here. My grandkids are here. They're gone. So I can't rely on them to do a job, right? Fill in a fish tank. That's about it. Right. But, you know, when I think about it that way, if I still have kids at home, like this leads to this leads to this, well, where do we go next? Well, what, what can I, what can I trick them into doing and thinking it's their idea? You know, <laughs> <laughs> the goal of successful management, right? Yeah. Yeah. Employees that, that think they think for themselves and do exactly what you want them to do. That's, that's brilliance right there. Um, so tell people a little bit uh, more about how they can learn about you, the work that you're doing, get your book, all that good stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, letting me share that. So, my online home is called Homestead Honey, and it's homestead-honey.com, and that's kind of the central hub where everything happens, um, and the book is available, uh, of course, via all the major online re retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, etc. I also am selling copies um, 
through my Etsy shop, which is Acorn Hill Handcrafts. Um, but basically, I would say send people to Homestead Honey and come visit me there. I, I have a ton of free resources on the blog. I've been blogging for, you know, six and a half years at this point. You could go back to the beginning and look at, you know, posts from when my kids were one year, Everett was one years old and um, we were still living in Oregon. And then the whole evolution of our homestead in Missouri and, and of course, now, you know, beyond so, so that's sort of my online home there. And I'm on Instagram. It's homestead underscore honey and uh, Facebook and, you know, pretty much everywhere. So like I said, I have the free resources on the blog. I have several ebooks that I've written that are also available on my website, the new book, Family Homesteading. And then I run um, coaching programs for women. And we'll, I'll be running my next group program in uh January. And that's really designed for people who are interested in homesteading um, to help them kind of overcome these barriers of thinking that it's too overwhelming or how to get started. And we just we kick some serious butt and join together in a really supportive community. So that's a really fun time as well. Well, very cool. I'll make sure I have links to all that stuff. And I just looked up your Etsy shop. So I'll make sure that's on there as well, where people can find that. And um you know, real quick, can you say a little bit about that? Like, uh, I know that homesteaders are always looking for peripheral uh, income streams. I've noticed that a lot of people in my community use Etsy. I have not, other than I've bought some stuff there. It's really weird when you buy something from Etsy and then, like, you know, get shipped with a note. Like, holy crap, it's you. I listen to you all the time. You're like, really? Okay, this is awesome. <laughs> but, but, like, how has that, that worked out for you? And, and what makes yeah. Etsy different than from something like eBay or something? Well, Etsy was kind of designed as a platform for people who were making and selling handmade items. Um, I think it's, I think it's sort of expanded a little bit beyond that these days, but the original intention was Etsy was for crafters. So, um, I enjoy Etsy. I think it's a great place for people who want to experiment with having a supplementary income and you don't want to do all the work of setting up a website and an online commerce platform on your own. Um, up until recently, up until when we moved, well, really the Etsy shop is really my husband's domain. Um, he's an artist blacksmith and in Missouri, that was his primary source of income was making beautiful metal things with traditional coal forge techniques, um, and then selling them on the Etsy shop. And since we've moved, he just doesn't have his shop set up. So he shifted to carpentry. But we still maintain the Etsy shop, and at this point, I have my uh, ebooks, my print book, and then my children actually both have their own businesses, which is really cool. So Ella is making um, salves from oh, some of them are verbs that we've purchased, but some of them are wild crafted, which is or things that we've grown, which has been really fun. Um, and then probably next week, sometimes I'll have Everett's listing up there, and he's making beeswax candles very cool. which are really well yeah that's very yeah cool. so it's great you know it's not our you know it's not our like primary income right now but i just think the earlier you can start to teach children about money and um biz, small business ownership the better so so that's kind of part of our family project is to help involve the kids in in our diversified income stream Awesome. Well, guys, I uh, 
uh, I'll make sure there's links to that uh, for you guys. But I'll, I'll let you guys out in the audience know Terry and her uh, husband Brian here uh, show 792 sales, 171 reviews, five stars overall. So if you uh, if you pick something up there, you know you're going to get taken care of. And uh, with that, Terry, thank you very much for being with us today on the Survival Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really have had a great time talking with you. Well, great stuff there from Terry. I, I really uh, appreciate uh, her commitment to what they're doing, and uh, I, I think this is an awesome topic. And, you know, uh, several years ago I ran a series called Women of Prepping, and I got a lot of gals on as uh, guests. Uh, I don't know that I want to do that as a dedicated series again, but I am going to tag this episode. I didn't think about it when I put it together. I'm going to tag this in the Women of Prepping series, and I probably should make sure any of those episodes can come up so you can find them. But, gals, I, I'd love to have more women on the show. I, I, I really would. I think that the perspective uh, between men and women is different. And I think that's an exceptional thing. Uh, and, and I don't do it out of some like perceived need to serve the minority or whatever, because, by the way, women, there's, there's more of you than there are of us. You are not the minority. But I do think that it is valuable to get multiple perspectives, and there is a definite difference in the perspective uh, on things between men and women, and that's a good thing. So, gals, if you've been thinking about being on the air, fill out the guest form. I have people all the time, I was thinking about being on your show, and I was like, fill out the guest form. And to the point of this, like, if, if, if Jesus appeared in a cloud and said, Jack, I want to be on the show, Jesus, you could do it with a wave of your hand, fill out the guest form. But if I don't have you fill out the guest form, and I don't forward the guest form to Dorothy, and Dorothy doesn't do the scheduling and everything that I have given her the responsibility for, I'm going to get in really big trouble. So fill out the guest form. Keep me out of trouble and get on the air. I'd love to have you. Anyway, with that, I'm going to throw out a little like completely random factoid today that probably like 2% of you even care about. But if you do care, it's a big deal. Uh, I am a fish geek, fish nerd, whatever you want to call it. I love fish. Uh, not just my aquaponic systems and tanks. I've got a, a leaking 55-gallon tank sitting on my desk that I have my hand on right now that I'm scraping the silicone out of so I can reseal it. And I'm actually enjoying it even though it's a sucky job. So I like fish tanks. Um, there's a company that I don't buy a lot from because they're generally overpriced. You've heard of them. They're a national chain brand, Petco. Generally, anything you can get at PetSmart and Petco, PetSmart will be less, and the people there tend to be nicer. Though Petco does have generally a better aquarium selection of fish and plants and stuff. Uh, so I'll go to them for that. But there's also one or two times a year I will go to Petco if I need something, and that being a tank, because they do something no other like pet store I know of does, on a regular basis anyway. It's called the dollar-a-gallon sale, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You want a 29-gallon tank? It's $29. You want a 10-gallon tank? 10 bucks. 20-gallon tank? $20. Got it? Sometimes when they do it, it goes up to like 55 gallons and even higher. So you can get a 55-gallon tank for 55 bucks. This time I think they put the cutoff at 29, but a lot of the other tanks are on sale half price. I have two projects coming up, one right away and one next spring, where I need a 40-gallon breeder. I don't know why, but 40-gallon breeders are ridiculously expensive, like 100 bucks. A 40-gallon breeder is more than a standard 55-gallon tank. I called uh, my local Petco today. The 40 gallons were indeed not covered, but they have a lot of other tanks on sale for 50% off. So I'm getting both of them for the price of one. If you're a fish geek, fish, fish nerd, or if you do terrariums, paludariums, any of that stuff, you 
Petco this week. And does it end Saturday or Sunday? The girl I spoke to on the phone who was nice enough to hold the two tanks for me, uh, get her manager's approval, and did a really great job. I pick on retail sometimes for not being scrolls brand new, didn't know shit, but she busted her ass to find out for me and get this done. Hold the tanks for me. Um, she said it either ends Saturday or Sunday, and no one here knows. So do with that information as you will. Next up, remember, if you want to support this show, the best way you can do that is through a program called the Members Support Brigade. To join, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty and Prior Service, and any first responders, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put TSPC space, service discount. Don't write the word space. Put a space in there, service discount, in the subject line. And if you do that, uh, I will send you back a discount code for your service. Do it before, not after you join. And guys, look, if you've been thinking about joining, you haven't joined yet, realize that this program is how I pay the bills. It's how I keep the show on the air. It's how we've been running for a decade. And if you use the discounts, it will pay for your membership. The other way to support us is really easy. Do your online shopping through tspaz.com. All you got to do, you're going to buy something. Go to tspaz.com, start there. Get on over to Amazon, see the deals of the day, see if there's anything you want. If not, just buy whatever you're going to buy. Do that, you help support the show. You'll also find all of my daily reviews. The review that I have for you today is awesome. And it's something I'm like, it's really cold and I need to bring this back. It's a little product called the Thermacube. And this thing looks like, you know, you have one outlet, you plug it into an outlet, you get two outlets. Except it may, like when you plug it in, you may plug into it, it may not work. Why would you want that? Well, the one that I use the most, it only works... At temperatures between 35 and 45 degrees. There's an internal switch, a little thermal switch in there. And when the temperature hits 35 degrees, it comes on. And when the temperature hits 45 degrees, it goes off. That's helps keep stuff from freezing up. So let's say you wanted to put a little space heater in your chicken coop. Just a little standard space heater. Make sure it doesn't get anywhere they're going to mess it up or get hurt with it. Well, you can plug that into it, leave it on, and then 35 degrees hits, it'll come on. 45, it goes off. Much more reliable than the internal internal you know, thermometers and thermostats in them. Lots of other things. If you have a stock tank de-icer that doesn't have a built-in uh, uh, thermostat, and some of them don't, uh, then you plug this thing in. They also make them in other options. How about on at 78 and off at 70 to keep things cool? Maybe a fan running in a chicken coop. Lots of other things you can do with them. They're like 11 bucks, 11 to $12, depending on the options. It's such a bulletproof little piece of technology. I've never seen one not work. Tons of you guys have bought them and used them over the years. No one's ever said, hey, this thing like fried my stuff or whatever. It's always worked. Again, it's made by a company called um, Farm Innovators. It's called the Thermacube. It's one of the best little pieces of technology there is out there. You can find out about it at tspaz.com, and as long as you shop at tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day today. Our song of the day today is just kind of a, a good old-fashioned country song, Hard Working Man by Brooks and Dunn. I have a couple things to say about this. Number one, I've always loved Brooks and Dunn, but I've always found Brooks and Dunn to be like the Hall and Oates of country music. And what do I mean by that? So they kind of have similar stories. Both, both of the duos were put together like studio musicians, guys who were cutting demos and stuff for other people that like figured out, hey, we could get together and do something. But I don't really understand it. I don't really understand it because... Daryl Hall is an amazingly talented vocalist, and John Oates kind of there. Um, Ronnie Dunn 
is an amazingly talented vocalist, and Ken Brooks is kind of there. Like, they're okay. They're better than me. God, those of you that were here for my karaoke performance know that they're better than me. But they're just not that great. Um, yet, both of them had incredible uh, success as a duo. And I don't know if it's marketing and branding and recognition. And the name sounds cool, Brooks and Dunn. But if you've ever heard the songs where, where, where Ken Brooks takes the lead, they, they've not been in the top 40. Some of them are even kind of good. But they're not the superstar quality of, of, of Ronnie Dunn. So I wonder how some of these things come together and how they work so well. The topic of the song, though, is the basic concept that I think will resonate with this audience. The concept of being you know, the blue-collar, hard-working man and getting things done and providing for your family uh, without some highfalutin degree or something like that. The, the, the backbone of this country. This is like the... the It's an old song, but the 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 mid modern, I guess, you know, somewhere between then and now, uh, version of Forty Hour Week from Alabama. And I think what's really interesting that I've seen in this community, and why I think this song resonates, a lot of us have stepped up above this as far as income or career. You know, we've become, you know, successful business people, entrepreneurs, content creators, engineers. I mean, when, when I when I start talking to people in this audience and find out what they do professionally, I'm always blown away. But when I meet people, they're always in boots and jeans or, you know, what have you. And, and, and they're always talking about, well, I'm digging this hole somewhere. And I think what it is is that the concept of actually doing good, meaningful manual labor that produces a result and gets shits done is, is actually an innately human thing. And even when we don't have to anymore, and we're probably grateful that we don't have to every single day, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, and then wonder if we're going to have enough money at the end of the month to pay our bills. Even when we get past that, we still want to do it. We just want to do it for ourselves. And there is a real satisfaction. And I remember being a guy, you know, working underground construction, making like $15 an hour, and only really having a halfway decent lot because I was getting 20 to 30 hours a week of overtime. Um, and, and I don't miss having to do it. But there's things I miss about it, the camaraderie, the, the guys around you, uh, and, and the feeling of getting things done. And when I go out and do it in my backyard, it feels a lot better. So I think that you can be this guy and work past it in your career and still be this guy. And I think that's a big part of this community. Hope you enjoy the song. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm a hard-working man. I wear a steel-hard hat. I can ride rope, a hammer, and paint. Do things with my hands that most men can't. I can't get ahead no matter how hard I try. I'm getting really good at barely getting by. Got everything I own by the sweat of my brow. From my four-wheel drive to my cowboy boots, I owe it all to my blue-collar roots. Feel like I'm working overtime on a runaway train. I got to... Bust loose from this ball and chain I'm a hard, hard working man I got it all on the line for a piece of the promised land And I'm burning my candle at the dens About the only way to keep the fire going is to outrun the wind 